You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with our sermon this morning, I'd invite you first to turn to the Gospel according to John, chapter 13. We'll read the verses 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now we'll turn to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Verses that by now many of us will be familiar with, but it will help us to read them over again. Philippians 2, the verses 1 through 11. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our text this morning is... Philippians chapter 2, the verses 19 through 30. 
I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served me with him in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who's also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him and on me, not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he also di- he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we've been going through this book of Philippians for the past number of weeks, we've seen Paul deal with some extremely weighty and important matters for the Christian life. He has discussed, among other things, the partnership that we have in the gospel. He's discussed the believer's confidence in life and in death in Jesus Christ. He's spoken about the unity in the body and union with Christ and how those two are intimately connected. He's spoken of the preeminent example of Jesus Christ, of his humble obedience and humility, and of the working out of that in our lives as believers. This is incredible, impactful, and meaningful theology. It's rich in its understanding of the Lord, of Jesus Christ, and of our connection with Him. In the course of all this, however, as you you read about and as we hear about all these important things, in a sense you can almost forget that Paul is actually writing a letter to the Philippians. That is, in fact, what he's doing. As you read these things, you have the idea that Paul is preaching, and that he's teaching, and that he's giving instruction, and, and that he's showing very many things about the Lord. But the bare fact that he's writing to the Philippians about his own condition, and that he's wondering about how they are doing, that he wants to give them advice, and that he wants to just speak about his plans for the future, that can easily become obscured by all the other weighty theological matters, but not so in this passage before us, in our text today. Here, Paul is notifying the Philippians of his situation, and he's telling them of his plans in simple terms, and the plans that he has for two brothers, for Timothy and Epaphroditus. It's a very practical, ordinary section. But yet, that's what we'll see this morning, even here, those profound insights into the gospel and into our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ are not lost. 
Rather, Paul uses the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus to illustrate Christ-likeness in action. Even as he gives details about his travel plans, I hope to come to you, I'm going to send Timothy, I'm going to send Epaphroditus. Even as he does that, the importance and the relevance of the gospel, uh, of the powerful work of Jesus Christ is not lost on Paul, and it's not lost for the Philippians either. And he communicates through Timothy, through Epaphroditus, how the gospel has been worked out in the lives of these two brothers. And so I preach to you the word of God this morning under that theme, that Paul's commendation of two brothers, of Timothy and Epaphroditus, is an example for us. And it's meant by Paul to be an example for us. So we'll see the example of Timothy, that he looks out for the interests of others. We'll see the example of Epaphroditus, the example of humble service. And we'll also see the example of Paul, the example that he gives gives to us as he commends these two brothers to the church in Philippi. So Paul's commendation of these brothers, even as he relays simple practical facts about travel plans, is an example for us. Before we go into this, the example of Timothy, first of all, we need to take notice of Timothy for a moment. You notice that the introduction that Paul gives to Timothy in in our text, the first half is basically about Timothy and the second half is basically about Epaphroditus. The introduction that Timothy gets is a lot different than the introduction that Epaphroditus gets. In fact, it's almost like Timothy doesn't get an introduction. Well, that makes sense because probably Timothy needs no introduction. Timothy was well known to the churches that Paul had written to. Timothy had been in Philippi along with Paul and Silas. You can read about that in the book of Acts. And Timothy, in fact, if you were to go back to chapter 1, verse 1, Timothy is a co-writer of this letter along with Paul. And so Timothy needs no introduction to these Philippians. He was well known to them. He was that well-known companion and protege of Paul's. Actually, Timothy co-wrote five letters along with Paul, and three of the letters that he wrote were most likely written during the time that Paul was imprisoned in Rome. And that's the time in which he writes this letter to the Philippians. So Paul, as he's writing this letter to the Philippians and he's taking care of business, and simply relaying his plans to have Timothy come, spend some time with them, and then report back to Paul. That's what Paul is doing here. That's how he's writing about Timothy. But Paul is certainly doing more than simply outlining his travel plans. He also takes this opportunity to illustrate how the gospel works out in the life of one of God's servants. Notice in in our text the prominence of of the look out for the needs of others, look out for the interests of others, and the welfare of others language that's being used in verses 20 and 21. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Everyone, Everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but Timothy has proven himself and looks out for the needs of Jesus Christ. 
And when we read this language, that should remind us of chapter 2, verse 4. What Paul had already written to the Philippians when he said, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul there was telling the Philippians, this is how you need to work out the gospel in your lives by looking out for the interests of others. And then when he mentions Timothy, he says, Timothy is one who always looks out for the interests of others. So Paul is giving us an example of the outworking of the gospel. The general principle that Paul states here is in verse 21. It's kind of a negative principle, but it serves to highlight what Timothy actually does. He says that everyone looks out for his own interests. That's what you call a generalization, a sweeping statement. Paul has no qualifications there. Everyone looks out for his own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Well, that is a generalization. That is a sweeping statement. But is that not true? Is it not true that we look out for our own interests so often and not those of others and not those of Jesus Christ? Our first impulse is to look out for number one. But Timothy, Paul says, does not do this. Rather, he looks out for the needs of Jesus Christ. Now, wait a minute, you'll say. I thought Paul was illustrating the point that Timothy looked out for the needs of others. So, why does it matter that he looks out for the needs of Jesus Christ? Isn't the point supposed to be the needs of others here? What's going on? Well, yes, that is precisely the point that Paul is getting to. You see, Timothy here doesn't serve as as an example of good morality. He's not just simply a person who naturally looks out for the well-being of others. No, rather... Timothy is an example of Christ-motivated and Christ-generated service. That is, Timothy is an example of how service ought to be carried out to Christ first of all, and then through Christ to others. Timothy looks out for the needs of Jesus Christ, and that compels him to look out for the needs of others. You see how that works? Timothy is not just an example of of someone who has an uncommon interest of others, but rather of someone who has an uncommon interest in Jesus Christ. And the result of that is that he looks out for the needs of others. You can see the links being made here in our text. In verse 21, Paul says that most don't look out for the interests of Jesus Christ, and that's clearly being contrasted with Timothy. Also, this concern for the interests of Christ is parallel with the statement in verse 20 that Timothy takes a genuine interest in your welfare. So Timothy illustrates precisely the point that Paul made in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that union with Christ, that worship and service of Him, that having Jesus Christ first in your life works itself out in loving service to others. And as verse 22 shows, in doing the work of the gospel, the work of advancing the gospel. And so we come back to some major themes that Paul has been working out in this letter. One of them is the advance of the gospel. Remember, that's what really counts, the advance of the gospel. 
That's what Paul's committed to. And that's what Timothy is committed to, as verse 22 says, uh, as a son with his father. And this is what the Philippians are also committed to in their partnership in the gospel with Paul. Now, the way that the gospel advances is going to look a little different between Paul and between Timothy and the Philippians. But the main point is the same, and that the gospel is advanced, first of all, by serving Jesus Christ. We first put our eyes on Jesus Christ and then work out that in our lives. And this ties, of course, with the theme of being, first of all, focused on Christ. And doesn't it so easily happen that in our zeal to carry out evangelism, or to promote God's kingdom, or to serve the gospel, doesn't it so easily happen that we take a pragmatic approach? That we just want to be practical? You feel like you have to be busy. You feel like you have to do something practical. You feel like you got to get your feet on the ground and just just do something to serve God's kingdom. But Paul, using the example of Timothy, shows us that that's not where it starts. That's where it goes. But that's not where it starts. It all starts with worshiping Jesus Christ. It all starts with setting your eyes on Christ, worshiping Him, and wanting to serve Him. The practical things get worked out after that. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're just working and laboring, and you're not doing it as an act of worship to Jesus Christ. We need to listen to His Word. We need to be attentive to Him. We need to learn from Jesus Christ, learn from His example, as we read in John 13. We need to be united with Jesus Christ. We need to place our faith and our trust in Him, and then work out the implications of that for our lives. And then, of course, in doing that, in taking our interest in the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll become attentive to the interests of others and we'll become effective in carrying out the work of the gospel. But even, we can say, the promotion of the gospel, even spreading the kingdom and advancing the gospel, is not what we might often think of it. It doesn't begin with handing out flyers in our neighborhood, although that's a very good thing. It doesn't begin with having a good church website where people can can see what we're all about and then hopefully join us on Sunday morning or afternoon, although that's a good thing. It's not about having a good welcome package so that visitors can feel welcome in our church, although, of course, that's a good thing. It doesn't even begin with inviting your neighbor to church, although, of course, that's a great thing. It begins simply by looking out for the welfare of others. Not looking out for your own interests, but being concerned with others. You see what I'm saying there? It's not about what the programs that you do. It's not about the structures that we have in place. It's about how we treat one another. That's the gospel being advanced in our lives. That's the kingdom being spread among us. It's about being genuinely concerned, caring, loving, finding your interest in others, wondering about how they're doing, what's going on in their lives, rejoicing when they rejoice, weeping when they weep, sitting in silence with others, laughing with them. 
In commending Timothy to the Philippians, Paul commends Timothy's example of of Christ-driven service through loving his neighbors. But Paul returns again at the end of the section from 19 to 24 about his, to his primary motive, and that's simply to relay his plans. In verse 23, he reasserts that he hopes to send Timothy soon, and he even indicates that if it's the Lord's plan, that he would like to see the Philippians as well. And so we leave Timothy, and we come then to the example of Epaphroditus. The second example of Christ-centered service that Paul gives comes along, of course, in the second commendation, and that's Epaphroditus. Now, as I mentioned before, you notice immediately that Epaphroditus gets a totally different introduction than Timothy did get. And Paul lays on the accolades, especially at the beginning. It's necessary to send back Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. He's your messenger. You sent him. Three phrases to show the unity and the kinship that Paul feels with Epaphroditus. And so yet, you have to wonder, why does Paul give this sort of introduction to Epaphroditus? It's not like Epaphroditus was unknown to the Philippians. He actually came from the Philippians to Paul. So why is Paul introducing him in this way? Well, the first and primary reason, of course, is that that's how Paul feels about this brother. He's impressed by him. He feels that he is a brother, a fellow worker, and a fellow soldier. But I think that there's another reason that lies behind the background and behind the circumstances in which Epaphroditus has come to Paul. There's a background concern that Paul reveals in writing these words. And here's the scenario as best as I think it can be put together. Epaphroditus was a young man from the Philippian church. Well, perhaps not a young man. A man from the Philippian church. When the church of Philippi heard about Paul's situation in Rome, that he was in prison, that he needed help, and they were eager to help him, and so they sent him a gift of money. That Paul comes back to that at the end of the letter. Epaphroditus was commissioned as the one who would bring the gift and would serve Paul in whatever way Paul would deem necessary. So the, Epa- the Philippians sent Epaphroditus with money and then charged him to help out Paul in whatever way that he could. Now, at some point during that trip, or perhaps after it, Epaphroditus got sick. Very sick. You can read about that in verse 27. Indeed, he was ill, and he almost died. Now, it may have been after he arrived in Rome, where Paul was in prison, that he got sick. But it was more likely along the way. Probably what happened is Epaphroditus was on his way from Philippi to Rome. And halfway, or somewhere along the way, he got very sick, and he wasn't sure if he would be able to make it. And so he sent a message back to the Philippians saying, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to press on and give the gift to Paul in Rome. But then, realizing Paul's need and wanting to to serve the Philippians, he pressed on and he got to Rome, even though it almost cost him his life. And when he arrived at Rome, he was able to recover. But in the meantime, of course, the the trip was very difficult for Epaphroditus. In his sickness, he missed his brothers and sisters in Philippi. And even more, as you can read in this text, there's this kind of tension. He's worried that they're worried about him. And so he, he, he misses his brothers and sisters, even though he wants to serve Paul in Philippi. And so that forms the background. And so what Paul is doing here 
is he's noting what Epaphroditus has done. He wants the Philippians to know what Epaphroditus has done, that he has been faithful. And perhaps one of the reasons for Paul's obvious and vaulted praise is simply to assure the Philippians that Epaphroditus had done his duty, that he had done it with zeal, and that he's returning to them not because he was no good to Paul, but simply because Paul wants him to go back to the believers in Philippi. He wants the believers to be assured that Epaphroditus had done all he could in his service to, to Paul and ultimately to Jesus Christ. And therefore, he shouldn't be judged with suspicion when he comes back a little early, but he should be given honor and thanks. And that, then, forms the theological emphasis of the commendation of Epaphroditus. If Timothy embodied the principle of Philippians 2, verses 1-4, through 4, then Epaphroditus is the example of Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. You know that, that part about the Lord Jesus Christ and his humble service. That's what Epaphroditus embodies. Epaphroditus was sent as a servant. And his service, much like the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll actually notice, was up to the point of death. Although he didn't die, he was at the point of death. Not only that, but just as Christ was honored for His service by God the Father, Paul says that Epaphroditus should be honored for His service for the Philippians. Epaphroditus is the example of humble service being worthy of honor. Now think about this situation and what Epaphroditus had done. Epaphroditus was just a messenger boy. He was just the mailman bringing along uh, the gift of the Philippians. He became sick, and now he has to return early from his trip. He hasn't really accomplished all that much. Was it difficult? Yes. Was it dangerous? Yes. Was it glamorous? Absolutely not. But that's not what matters at all to Paul. Epaphroditus' mundane, take a gift to Paul in Rome, just walk along the road, his lowly commitment to obedience and service is exactly what Paul was calling the Philippians to early in, earlier in the chapter. That's exactly the kind of commitment and the kind of service that we have to work out in our lives. It's not always glamorous. It's not always noteworthy. But it's humble obedience to Jesus Christ. And that is the example that our Lord Jesus Christ gave us, isn't it? In John 13. When He became a servant when he washed his disciples' feet, and he showed us the way that we ought to serve him. And so in this way, Epaphroditus becomes the example of service and obedience for us. Do you think that the glamorous position, the place of leadership, that the front lines is where the honor goes, that that's what you should aspire to? It's not. In the kingdom of Christ... For the sake of the advance of the gospel, the honor is in simply carrying out your duty. Simply finishing the task that God has given you to do. It's in in serving as a fellow worker and a fellow soldier in whatever God calls you to do. I'm reminded of Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. You remember him? Perhaps not. He was one of David's mighty men. Noted for being David's mighty man, And it was his job to guard the bean patch in Israel. 
It wasn't a glamorous position, but it's one that the Lord took notice of for His service. What God wants from us is obedient service in humility. People like Epaphroditus are worthy of honor in the church. And then, so of course, the flip side of this is that we as a church need to recognize what is worthy of honor. Do you believe that that person who carries out some mundane task in the church is the one worthy of honor? Our world is one that loves change, loves progress, loves advancement, loves the big leader, loves the glamour, and we don't esteem those who are just simply faithful. But we should. Epaphroditus was faithful. And Paul calls the Philippians to honor him and to honor people like him. And so we should honor the simple, faithful, unglamorous acts of service of others. And so we leave Epaphroditus now and we see the example given to us by Paul. That's the final example that is being commended to us as well. This one is being commended to us by the Spirit of God who inspired these words. That's the example of Paul. In Paul's kind words to uh, of praise for Timothy and Epaphroditus, it would be easy to overlook the example of Paul, but we shouldn't because the Spirit is showing us how to communicate and how to speak about others in the body of Christ. Now, there is the sort of explicit example of Paul given throughout the passage when Paul expresses his concern for the Philippians, this concern that was born out of a concern for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the gospel of Jesus Christ means nothing to you if you're not concerned about how it works itself out in the lives of real people. Having the interests of Christ, as Timothy did, means that you're concerned about people, not programs, not buildings, not finances, people. And that's what Paul is focused on as he writes to the Philippians. Paul displays this in verse 19. He says that he'll be cheered when he can receive news about them. He cares about these people. In verse 28, he says he'll be at ease when he finds out that the Philippians are at ease. In some, serving Jesus Christ and advancing the gospel has drawn Paul to care deeply about the people that he serves. He's not just a preacher. He's not just a leader. He's not just an apostle. He's someone who cares about God's people. And that's, of course, reflected in his relationship with Timothy and Epaphroditus as well. Of Timothy, he says, I have no one else like him. He's to Paul as a son is to a father. And about Epaphroditus, we already spoke about that. He's a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. When he was saved, it saved Paul from having sorrow upon sorrow. Paul exemplifies in these words the love of Jesus Christ that warms the heart of those who have been saved by grace. That much should be obvious to us. But I want to take just a moment here in closing to the context in which Paul writes these words about these brothers. Now, Paul, I'm sure, he knew nothing about the internet. He didn't know anything about email or blogs or Facebook or Twitter. And I'm sure that some of you know nothing about these mediums as well. But many, many of us are communicating on the internet 
in various ways these days. We live in what's been called the communication age. Communication is easy. It's easy to speak to others. It's easy to get a message out there. But we need to take the example of Paul's communication to heart when we communicate, when we communicate in our communication age. Paul's example of wholesome, gospel-generated and transformed communication. Because it happens way too often that brothers and sisters in the Lord seem to forget that they're brothers and sisters in the Lord when they speak about each other on the internet. They become slanderous. They become mean. They become uncharitable. They even become angry. It's so easy to fire off an email, fire off a blog post, leave a comment somewhere out of selfishness and anger in a way that's not wholesome, in a way that is not generated by the gospel. Just click and it's done. And it's so easy to just drag someone's name through the mud without caring for your brother or for your sister in Christ. It's so easy to ignore facts or to distort facts. See, one of the problems with media, what's happening with the media that we use, is that instead of building up relationships, it's actually dismantling relationships. It's dismantling relationships when we say something mean about someone on our Facebook page, or when we send off a nasty email, or when we leave a nasty comment on someone's blog. But what the gospel does, what Jesus Christ does, is restore and rebuild relationships in order to protect us from sin and to make us stronger in our fight for the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ that brings us from death to life changes us, and it needs to change how we communicate as well. We need to show love for others, even in cyberspace. We need to uphold the reputation of others. We need to honor them. Paul gives us an example of how our service to Jesus Christ gets worked out in our lives and in our communication. The example he gives is of two brothers who are committed to serving Jesus Christ. And so what we have through this discussion of Paul's plans is a call to service. That's what we have through this example of Timothy and Epaphroditus, a call to service. To Jesus Christ, first of all, to serve in humble obedience, and to do whatever is necessary to get the job done to the glory of our Father in Heaven. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.